1973, a group of LGBTQ activists came together to form the National LGBTQ Task Force and advance a progressive vision of liberation for the LGBTQ community. But our fights are far from over. Join us for a series of conversations about the past 50 years and what comes next from the voices and organizers who helped shape our history. At the task force, we believe in showing up. We march at protests, lead policy meetings by day, and take over the dance floor at night. It's that spirit, the one that connects activism with joy, that guides us as we mobilize and organize. As our 50th anniversary year comes to a close, we sat down with our very own executive director, Kiera Johnson and Scott Nakagawa, co-founder and executive director of the 22nd Century Initiative, to discuss why joy and celebration of our queer identities is a vital part of building a bold, inclusive, and intersectional LGBTQ movement. You want to start, Kiara? Sure, sure. A lot, like a, so many of us, I was kind of an, like an accidental activist. It wasn't... <laughs> wasn't planning on working at a nonprofit. I didn't consider myself particularly political. I mean, I had a strong sense of right and wrong, which I don't know, someone might argue that is exactly the direction I was going to go. But I, in my mind, I didn't have a plan for it. My sister got pregnant um, when she was 16. Uh, she lived in Florida. And I watched her struggle right? I watched her as she navigated, right? Being pregnant, being a parent and how she was vilified and judged and barriers were erected for her along the way. There's this so-called pro-life movement that, that acts like having babies is the right decision. And the reality is, is that it wasn't right at the time for her, you know, she was tracked out of high school, really struggled to keep jobs. It's at a young age, I realized it didn't matter what decision women and girls chose, it was always going to be wrong, right? Like, you know, we were every decision we made was one to be judged. And and that kind of it it catalyzed me, I was like, this is wrong. (laughs) And I became a reproductive health like champion. Um, I started in undergrad, organizing with the United States Student Association. And then from there, you know, I'd been bitten by the political bug. I was like, I'm ready. I want to fight for reproductive health. I want to fight for LGBTQ issues. I want to fight for labor rights. It was so clear to me, even from a young age, how connected all of those were. And I was really clear I wanted to be a part of that work. I started out in um, social justice work when I was a teenager in the 1970s. That's a long time ago. Ooh, you're looking good, Scott. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 62. And I mean, you know, the wrapper looks a little bit, um, you know, fresher than that. But the inside is 62. <laughs> you know what? I, I identify with that. That's real. I grew up in Hawaii and I grew up in particular in rural Hawaii on the island of Oahu on a sugar plantation. Back in the day when the sugar plantation was still running, 
And when the high school yearbook of the local high school was published every year, there was a letter from the sugar boss welcoming everybody from field to factory. And so, you know, it was that kind of situation. Um, there was a rich community there. It wasn't, you know, the kind of sad, horrifying story of oppression that people, I think, sometimes imagine it would be in a situation like that. But um, there were many lessons I learned growing up in that environment because the plantation I grew up was part, uh, on was part of a system that enveloped Hawaii in the days when it was a banana republic. And in the days when Hawaii was a banana republic, the plantation system was actually developed on the model specifically of Jim Crow in the U.S. South. This was a white supremacist um, oligarchy that ran Hawaii. And um, people like me were disenfranchised. Now, in my lifetime, I've always been, you know, um, a U.S. citizen. But in the par my parents' lifetime and in their parents' lifetime, um, they were only marginally included in uh, among Americans. And so, um, you know, they had to fight through their lifetimes. They were able to take part in organizing the first successful agricultural labor strike in the history of the United States, which transformed the life of our community and their lives and created opportunities for them that they then cashed in on by getting involved in politics. It was all very transactional. Like if you want this political seat for this guy, you might get a job in his office, et cetera, et cetera. And so I grew up among political campaigns and among people who were involved in politics and talked about politics all the time. But the thing that really got me excited was that in the 70s, in my teens, um, people who were Hawaiian sovereignty activists um, took on a project with the National Geographic Society, of all things, um, to build a canoe, an outrigger canoe called the Hokulea, and to uh, sail it from Hawaii to Tahiti and back again to disprove a kind of racist myth about how Hawaiians got to Hawaii, basically by accident, by getting lost in the ocean, right? And um, to be, uh, make the claim to the true history of the Polynesian people, which was um, they were among the greatest um, voyaging societies on Earth. And um, so they did it. They actually were able, after a couple of false starts, to get from Hawaii to Tahiti and back again. And when they came back, the beaches were just packed with people greeting them home. And I still get tearful thinking about it. It was one of those moments when you realize that history is written by the victors. But the victors' victories are always subsidized with the labor of people like us. And so that got me involved in a different kind of politics outside of campaigns and elections um, around social justice and human rights. And I've been in that work ever since. And oh, by the way, for a while, worked at the task force. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I first found community among other activists when I was being a service provider. You know, so for years, I was a service provider in Hawaii. I worked with people who suffer from domestic violence and child abuse and who were in at-risk families that were, you know, um, struggling with all the things that um, lower income families adapting to rapid change um, struggle with. And um, so the people who worked there um, became my community really quickly because of the kind of work we did. You know, it was just full of violence and it was hard and it was very long hours. And so we supported each other basically by playing together. You know, we would have big parties on the weekends and we, you know, would go out after work in the evenings and, you know, maybe have a drink and talk off the day and um, shake off all the stress. And so that became my first big community. You know, we also engaged in political campaigns together in order to make sure that people were in office who could secure our funding. And um, so there were lots and lots of opportunities for us to get together and basically experience joy, the theme of this 
podcast, um, which was the fuel that sustained us and got us through all of the work. And, you know, over time that evolved and changed, I left Hawaii in order to find a gay community. And I found one pretty much right away. Um, though I have to say that one of the ways I found my way into a queer community in Portland, Oregon, in the late 80s, maybe around 1990 by that time, was by joining ACT UP. There was an ACT UP chapter there. And all the cutest political boys belong to ACT UP. So I decided I needed to join too, so I could cut out all the, you know, like, hi, my name is, and just be like, you're like me and I'm like you, let's have fun. And so <laughs> that's what got me involved in that group. And then, you know, all the rest of it, of course, was very much on my mind in the middle of the AIDS pandemic and whatnot. But the first impetus was, this is a community I can join. And if I join this community, I might even find love. And so that's what I did. Oh my God. Um, it's so, I'm, I was excited that we were going to do this together anyway. And that story and the story of the beach being full of people, right? Like that joy, our pain, right? And our fighting and our joy are so closely knitted together right like we find ways to be in joy right and create joy and name and and acknowledge joy right even in the midst of like extreme pain i came out when i was um i was 21 i i really thought <laughs> i really thought i was an ally i was just i was like the uber ally i was like Hey, I'll do office hours at the LGBTQ center. Sure, I'll write an op-ed about queer black folks through the years for, you know, Black History Month. Yeah, I'll I'll mentor the new LGBTQ, you know, students on campus. And then I and then it was like, yeah, no, you're not an ally. You're you're a gay. And I was like, oh, uh, okay. So I had a whole community of queer people before I even came out. So it was kind of great because I started I had started weaving that together as an ally um, for a few years before I even came out. Um, my my first organizing. Actually, my first 20 years of organizing wasn't a, around LG, you know, LGBTQ specific or like with LGBTQ specific organizations or on, you know, specific issues regarding the LGBTQ community. And yet I found my, my LGBTQ crew right in those spaces. And it was... Um, I remember I came to DC and I went to my first NIAC conference, the National Youth, Youth Advocacy Coalition. And it was the first time I was surrounded, like surrounded by LGBTQ folks. And most of them were like brown and black folks. And it blew my mind. I was like, I think I might be home. I mean, I couldn't stop smiling. Like my face hurt. Like I, like I just, I was so excited to be around not just queer people, but queer people of color in droves. And it, it really um, ignited a passion for me about how I can continue doing this work, and 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 it broadened who who I thought I could do it with. Right? Yeah. And that was. I don't know, I guess that set me on my trajectory to come here. But I, I, I just, 
I fell in love with my people. I mean, okay, literally, I did find love. Um, literally find love. And <laughs> I, um, I found love, like a deeper love for the movement too. So many of us are told either um, in a very direct way or it's indirect that we aren't enough, right? That we're not worthy, worthy of happiness, worthy of love, worthy of rights, worthy to exist. So joy in that context is a very um, meaningful, priceless commodity, asset, tool to get to a place where you can look in the mirror and say, I love myself, to get to a place where you see your people and you don't love them despite who they are, but because of who they are, when everywhere you look, something is uh, telling you that you don't get to be right in 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 a place of joy and celebration to be in it anyway <laughs> that defiance right like is it's meaningful it's powerful it's magical and in a time like this i would even say it's political it is the fertile soil it is the fertile ground that i believe we need to then build power from i don't think we can do it without joy and without hope that's what I mean by queer joy, when I want that for our people, that we are deserving of that. When I say it is an act of resistance, that's the context that I mean it. I agree that um, joy is a very political thing. You know, I'm basically a professional anti-fascist. And so I've been studying fascist movements and fascist ideas for a very long time now. And, um, and the way that people react to them, you know, because fascists are rarely the majority when they take over and um, are rarely the majority if they are able to destroy democracies. But um, somehow the rest of us, the majorities, don't get ourselves in order to be able to act that way quickly enough to be able to stop them. Right. And um, one of the reasons is because we become in, we end up in situations where we become so submerged in fear and anxiety Right, that we start to obey in advance. We start to do all of the things to not draw attention to ourselves, to try to disappear, to not be the target. And then that, because people are so social, becomes normative. And it becomes the way that people generally behave because people tend to behave the way the majority behaves. Right, And so um, in situations like that, moments of joy can make a really big difference. Um, when you think about the LGBTQ movement, People often characterize our beginnings at, um, at Stonewall um, as a kind of reaction to fear, oppression, and violence. But, um, you know, fear, violence, you know, oppression, what does it stand in the way of? What did it for people at Stonewall? What does it for us now? Well, love, right? Love, freedom, the freedom to express ourselves, to experience joy with one another in community. Those are the things that we were really fighting for. You know, history tells us that we were fighting against police and we we're fighting against fear and we we're fighting against all of these other things. But, you know, you don't just fight against and be able to sustain a movement across so many generations. We we're fighting for something. And that something we're fighting for was love. And nothing could be more joyful than that, right? 
So um, I think it's incredibly important. And I also see this in work I do with people who are in other places around the world who are succeeding and actually making advances under deeply anti-authoritarian regimes. The way they're doing it is by provoking joy. You know, running political ads in which people are dancing and singing and, you know, ethnic groups that are not supposed to be mixing are hanging out together and sharing and, you know, all of those kinds of things that help people to feel like, okay, so the world could be really different, right? It doesn't just need to be this. When you call someone to take action and you say, because you live in an oppressive society full of violence and it's time for us to end it, they might act, but that's a tiny minority. It's people like me and Kara, right? A friend of mine says that, you know, the people who run toward a fire in order to help are not normal. The ones who are normal run away from the fire because they don't want to get burned, right? So, you know, what we have to offer people is some hope and, you know, nothing is more hopeful than joy. I mean, I think, Scott said it, right? Um, it's it's what a, a sustained movement for the people is built on, built in. You know, some have argued that the political climate is the worst it's been for LGBTQ people in the last 25 years, maybe more. So there's a lot of conversation, right, about what is, what's going to be the answer, right? Like, what's the silver bullet? What's the strategy? What's the organizing campaign? Who's going to be our target and our audience? To Scott's point, authoritarian leaders, they use fear, right, and violence to put a stranglehold on hope and joy and visionary thinking. So if we are going to find ourselves out of right this violent political and cultural moment then we've got to find the hope and the joy we've got to inspire generations now of people to reinvest or to invest for the first time right in um in their community and in political engagement in activism and that's no that's no easy feat, right? Like, you know, it's been easily, right? We're talking just thinking about the last seven years, right? Eight years, COVID and Trump, that was a that was like a one-two punch on people's hope, <laughs> on people's hope and joy. And so we've got some work to do. And I think the only way we do that is engage with real people, not like you said, Scott, people who are ready to run into the fire. Like, we got to talk to real people, right? Like, wh- like, what do you want to do? Like, who do you want to be? Like, how do you want to hang? What are you afraid of? We make a lot of assumptions and projections on people who aren't, like, in movement, right? And I think finding the joy, like, finding that seed, wh- wherever it is, right? Whatever it is, and planting that and watering that and feeding that and taking care of that and being engaged and committed as a community to to watching that grow. I think it has to be part and parcel to any campaign that we're doing, right? Like any power mapping, any skills building, any political analysis, like we've got to really be thinking about what hope and joy looks like. How do we really tap into that for people? You know, I choose to be happy every day. 
at least for some part of the day, I choose to be blissfully happy, to dance around in my living room, to you know, do something that's just silly and frivolous and happy making. Um, I want to live out that happiness. I want to actually embody a joyful spirit um, because I find it's actually good medicine. Um, when I was a really young person, um, I lived in a context of tremendous violence. And um, people talk a lot about trauma nowadays. I'm sure I experienced my fair share. But, um, but, you know, one of the most important things I was taught back then, um, at times when I was wallow in that trauma, is um, that perhaps one of the best ways of getting over the sadness that I felt and the fear I felt, the anxiety I felt about the world, was rather than to dwell on all of the bad, to actually try to have as many good uh, experiences as possible in order to, you know, create a store of them that I could draw upon and to keep building it until they outweighed all of those bad things. So not to forget them, but to put them in perspective, to remind myself that there was a way out. And so I think collectively we need to go through something like it. You know, we need to reclaim the future by understanding that um, the path to it is going to be a joyful one. It is absolutely uh, important thing that people have learned all over the world who are resisting repressive regimes, that joy is a form of martial arts and can be deployed in the advancement of movements, that movements that are free of joy don't work. They fail, right? They just fail. But movements that are lofted by joy provide something for people that allows them to embody what the movement represents and feel good doing it and live it 24-7 and fight for it and keep it alive from generation to generation. So that joy in there is really, really important. It's a real political asset. It's not just something on the side. It should be at the middle of what we do. How do we build the biggest tent possible? When I think about where we are right now, I feel like over the last like 15 years, we've cut people out of our community. We've decided, okay, these aren't our people. These aren't our people. These people aren't our people. You're not whatever enough, right? It's kind of a, like, let's reverse engineer that, <laughs> you know? Instead of figuring out who's not our people, I would love for us to just start figuring out who else are who else are our people? Who's not at this table and what why didn't we bring them to this table? Right? Who else is impacted? Maybe not directly, but what's the next circle out? Right? Like let's ask other people, the people who are we think are our people. Who else do you think needs to be in and why? And then let's do the work to bring the folk in. I think for so many of us who have and and I mean, frankly, most of us do. And multiple identities, right? I identify as Black. I identify as a woman. I identify as queer. I identify as a parent. I identify as a Southerner, right? Like, there are these things. So all of those are my people. That's how I think about it, right? Like, I don't necessarily like all my people within my people, but they're still my people. <laughs> so... You know, I think it, there's this question of, do we want to feel good all the time or do we want to make impact? And that requires us being engaged with a, with a broad crew of folks who are going to challenge us. But I think if we're committed to, to winning, if we're committed to liberation, if we're committed to impact, then we're, then we're going to be in the community struggle of it. You know, how can we be, how do we practice being in, I love this, this term principled struggle, 
right? Like how do we practice being in principled struggle and staying in community with each other? I think it's the only way, like talking to ourselves, talking to the same people who think like us, look like us, like, we're just, like that's just not the end game. Um, and it's something I'm, I'm really tasking myself with right now. Like how do, how do I push myself to, to stay in community, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, even when I've been hurt, even when I've hurt somebody else, right? How do I lean into that in a way that is um, restorative and helps move the relationship and the work forward? It's always hard to follow, Kara, but um, I will try. <laughs> I always feel that way about you. I'm like, dude, don't make me go after Scott. I'm going to sound like a complete like moron. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that's possible, but um, I believe in the Big Ten. I believe it's possible. I know it's necessary. And in order to be able to win the day right now, we need to assemble super majorities. Amen. Um, even in our elections, majorities are losing their power, you know, to That's right. be the deciding factor, right? And so, um, you know, we need to start to really think about how to reach to bigger and bigger groups of people. And that's going to mean having to draw a circle um, that is large enough to contain them all and a place where they can imagine themselves being whole even when we disagree with them. So that's rough. We don't have a lot of practice at that. And, you know, I've studied this. There's never been a broad-based coalition to come together in the United States that's cross-cutting, bipartisan, that can achieve great goals together um, that wasn't divided by racism and often actually lean into white supremacy in order to succeed. And so um, I, you know, think um, this is not going to be easy but that it is possible and that um, achieving it could have a world historical effect because we will have done something we haven't been able to do before, prove to ourselves that it can work, right? And gain the kind of historical um, knowledge and the muscle necessary to go from being a countervailing force in the world against all the evils to being a prevailing force able to ring in the good. I think of that as a really happy process every day. It's a creative opportunity to me every day and every hour to try to think of all the ways to make that happen, to build the efficacy, or in other words, the ability of people to work together effectively of small groups of people and then link them to one another so that they can start to work together across groups um, is um, the thing I love to do more than anything else in life. And it's what I do on my job. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I'm all for all those things. I also want to just say this one thing, this one thing that I think is important for people to remember, which is that, um, you know, when I went looking for a queer community when I was a really young person, I was stepping into a kind of a historical stream, right? Finding my way to these sort of queer Mecca cities in the United States in order to be in a place where I could just step out and be like, this is who I am, come find me. You know, I never understood why those places existed in the beginning. I just knew they did and was happy that they did. But over time, I did come to understand why they existed. You know, I mean, it was kind of an um, over-the-rainbow experience for people to go to those places after World War II and find them and establish communities there. And the communities weren't established in order to fight the system. The communities were established in order to create safety, to create community. And in those spaces of safety and community, people loved themselves and each other so much that when they were attacked, they mounted a movement in order to protect those spaces. And then as they started to fight, they realized they could expand upon those spaces, that they didn't have to settle for the corners, that they could take the middle. And so they did and still are. 
So never underestimate the power of love and never, ever, ever forget that when we work together, whether we like each other or not, the end product is love if we just keep our eyes on one basic fact of humanity, which is some of the best way what Dr. King said, that we live in relations of mutual interdependence, that what I do affects you and what you do affects me, regardless of your ideology. And unless we can figure out how to get together and make sense of all of that, there are no solutions for you or solutions for me that will ever be satisfying. You know, I'm not sure where the policy agendas are and where, you know, of where people are organized now. Um, but I will say this and, you know, then turn it over to Kara to give us the real news, right? Um, that I do believe in our fight with anti-democratic forces in the U.S. Um, their picking on LGBTQ people is a mistake. I think that they're relying on an old fascistic playbook that, um, you know, directs people to provoke sexual anxiety and gender threats and that they're doing it and that it's having some effect but that ultimately what they're doing is poking awake a sleeping giant. Because we come from every walk of life. We are all kinds of people. We're cross-class, cross-race. We are everybody. And at some point, that is going to become clear to them. It's happened to them before. I believe that it is one of the hopeful things that is happening to them now, is that LGBTQ people are waking up and saying, we cannot just stand by as this happens. And as we are, people realize we are their loved ones, their friends, their neighbors, the people they rely on because we, you know, sweep the sidewalk or maintain the sewer or sell candy at the store, that we're all the different kinds of people who make up community and that they can't do it without us. I think that is 5,000% right. Um, we're on a precipice. We are coming into our own as a political powerhouse. <laughs> and to, like you said, Scott, like they have no idea what they have just started. They, they, they're not ready and they don't even know it. That's the work for us to do, right? Is to like show people, let them know, right? Remind them of their, their personal power, right? Their political power, their economic power and leverage it. Uh, we've got more power than, than we know. And, and, and I think the work is making sure we know, right? You know, uh, you know after marriage, there was a real um, divestment in organizing in the LGBTQ community. And so that's part of what, we, you know, we have to rev up again. You know, we've got it. We got dusty. We got a little, um, we got like the tin man or we're rusty. <laughs> Um, and we've got to, we, and organizing is the game and, and organizing isn't fast. It isn't cheap and we can do this, right? This isn't, this is what our communities know how to do. Um, I've heard folks say things like, oh, we need to take a page out of the opposition's playbook. And it's like, no, no, we don't. Cause they tried to steal our playbook. <laughs> we know what it means to invest in community. We know what it means to both ensure people have what they need to survive and thrive and organize. We, we've done that for centuries. And so I really think that's, you know, I think that's what it's about. I mean, we are, yes, are there unprecedented attacks at the state level that we've never seen before? Sure. There's also a network of state-based progressive organizations, including LGBTQ specific organizations that didn't exist 25 years ago, right? Like they are a 
force that is starting to gain more and more resources and power. And like I said, I, I, I think in the next three to five years, we are going to see some serious history making. And it makes me so excited um, to be a part of that. It's so funny. My 13 year old was like, mommy, I think we're going to be reading about what's happening right now in history. And I was like, you're right. We are making history right now. So if a 13 year old is like, dude, <laughs> we are in it. That's saying something. Um, and that makes me really excited. I, I do hope that sooner rather than later, we get the taste for eating our own, right? Out of our system, you know, hurt people, hurt people. But I do think the kind of community building and the kind of organizing and the growth in a diversity of leadership, right? Across sectors is laying the groundwork for us to put baggage down, mend some wounds, really heal, and lean into hope, joy, and political action. Well, I'll throw something out there. Because I've been doing this work of confronting various different kinds of right-wing movements for a long time now, I've seen the sort of trajectory over time. And I can tell you that before 2016, most people, when I would talk to them about the threat being posed to us by far-right groups, thought, that's from another time, right? That's not really now. And imagine that we were on a really different kind of path than we, in fact, ended up on. In 2016, when Donald Trump got elected, a lot of people's minds were changed by that, right? That was only seven years ago. Since that time, people have gone from denial to acceptance to grief to rage to creative resistance. Seven years. People are so adaptable. They can learn so quickly. And under the right circumstances, they can make changes, really big changes to the way they're engaging the world, um, like in a blink of an eye. It's really a remarkable thing to witness. And so, you know, in seven years, we were able to do this. We have built mass uh, mobilizing organizations. We've built lots of different groups that are doing research and counter-organizing and communications and narrative and you name it to help us to address this moment. And people are starting to now develop organizations to promote democracy, not democracy as we've lived it too. You know, I mean, really aspirational democracy, democracy as we've been promised it, but never received it. And so, you know, all of that happening in seven years, I say seven years from now, who knows what might happen? So every day I feel like is exciting because you just don't know what new development will come up. I like the idea of like having the seven year future view of ourselves, where we're going to be, what might be possible. I, my, I, you know, my hope is that we really take the time as individuals to find joy and healing and let ourselves be wrong, not to be threatened by being wrong. Like, what's the worst that can happen if Kiera's wrong today, <laughs> you know? And, and to free ourselves from that, to love ourselves enough, to love community enough, to want liberation and to live in this democracy that is yet unrealized enough to be wrong, but advance forward with deeper relationships, more impact, more celebration, right? That we're able to go further, that that's the consequence of being wrong. 
that we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to break relationships because of it. We don't have to forge a new enemy because of it. Um, that it just, being wrong doesn't carry the same weight in our lives culturally or politically anymore. And, and I really, yeah, that's my hope for us all. The National LGBTQ Task Force would like to thank our podcast guests for their time and thoughtful contributions. And thank you for listening.